Crumb. You guys are ready? Ready. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are the Chromecast, season four, episode six. We're talking about a little Lynn Carter joint today. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Chromecast. Damn right. It's good to be back, guys. It sure is. Great. This holiday season. This Yule season. Today was the solstice. Mm. So it's it's dark out. Dark outside right now as we <laughs> podcast. Yeah, so we've gathered again tonight to talk about what, Luke? The uh what is it? Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria. That's At right. least in the the version that we all read. Uh but it's the first Thongor yarn novel hmm? story thing by Lynn Carter. And we'll probably spend a lot of time talking about Lynn Carter. The man, the myth, the legend, too. Uh, we're not going to get through the entirety of the story. We all read pretty much the front half of the the novel, so yep. we're going to work through the front end here, and you'll get you'll get two Thongor Thongor episodes back Our to back here. Twain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Twice the Thongor. Twice the mighty Thews. That's right. <laughs> but before we get into talking about the story and uh, Lynn Carter, what are we drinking, guys? What do you got, John? Actually, I have uh, some Jameson tonight. Ooh. I felt like an Irish whiskey, and I purchased some, and I've been enjoying it quite a bit. Nice. What does an Irish whiskey feel like? When you feel like what? an Irish whiskey, describe how that feels. How does it feel, like in my tummy or no, no, no. on my tongue? You said you felt like one. Oh, uh, it's like you know, strong-bodied, kind of sweet, a little smoky. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I felt on the inside. <laughs> That's a nice feeling. I've got some. YouTube? I've got some Evan Williams. It's a uh, cheap bourbon, but it's not a bad bourbon. Uh, since 1783, this is Kentucky's first distiller, and it's distilled in Bardstown, Kentucky, and it's not so bad. Evan Rude. Evan Rude. That's what. Uh, that's what we called it when I was an undergrad. <laughs> well, it it is it. You could run your boat on it. I think. That's right. It's a little bit hot, <laughs> but it's no ancient age. No, no. It's or good old stuff. crow. Or, or old crow. Yeah, it's not bad. Luke. I am drinking a beer tonight. I have a uh, a spotted cow from New Glarus Brewing Company in nice. old Wisconsin. So it's a, what is it, a cask conditioned ale. Hmm. So it's a little bit, uh, little bit hazy, kind of like the, the wheat beers. If you ever drink any of those kind of beers that has like an orange that you put in it or a lime or, a, or not a lime, but a lemon or an orange. Like uh, a blue moon. Like a blue moon or or any of that kind of vice beer. So it's it's yeasty. It's a little bit hazy and it's super smooth. These uh, these cask condition ales. They're good. I like them. It's kind of like a cream ale. Hmm. If you guys have ever had any of uh, any of those. I see some foam there on top in your amber bottle. It's foamy. I'm swirling it around to get all the yeast up and around so it gets in my belly. I'm going to have to try one of those again, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. We will I share like them. We all like kind of changed it up tonight. Yeah. 
Yeah, last time the uh, the red wine incident, which I'm not sure if it made it in the episode since, <laughs> <laughs> since I didn't listen to the whole thing. I dropped in a, a jaunty accordion little jingle uh, while we were doing the cleanup. <laughs> That's good. Um, so I'll try to keep it under control this week. But I thought maybe not another whole thing of Carlo Rossi for me this week. <laughs> cool, cool. So we got our drinks out of the way. Let's, uh, let's do one thing and then we'll uh, jump into some mailbag. John, what is your one thing? I'm going to go with uh, I found Penn and Teller's bullshit on Amazon Prime recently. Nice. And I've been going through about five or six seasons of that. I haven't watched like every episode. Some of them, uh, my mileage varied with just uh, because of some of the topics. But for the most part, it's a really awesome show. I hadn't ever seen it. And uh, it's just really cool the way they pick through some of the stuff and talk about all the different angles. They get a little uh, mean-spirited occasionally, but it makes it more hilarious. And some of the topics that they pick through are things that we've talked about on the Chromecast. And I just really dig it. If you're into science and pseudoscience sort of exploration, you should check it out. Very cool, man. I've seen an episode or two of that just sort of late at night. It was on sort of in the background. And I had- some of them are kind of heavy. Like At one point, they talked about the conspiracies about 9-11 uh, and that gets pretty heavy because, you know, there's a lot of people out there with a lot of crazy conspiracies about that. But others are really lighthearted, kind of fun. They talk about magnet therapy in one. Oh, really? And just really tear it apart. Uh, just a lot of cool stuff like that. I think that Teller, Teller is the one that talks, right? That's Penn Gillette. Okay. So, so Penn got his start by, I think, doing street magic and juggling. And started charging money like a, you know a lot more money than other street magicians would to uh to perform for, for people because he was that damn good and uh there's this there's this podcast and I can't think of the name of it where uh he's talking about this and how he got his start and it was pretty interesting it was it was cool I'll have to find a link yeah yeah cool so that's my one thing Luke cool. what are you digging lately uh, I am digging the new uh, album by the band Baroness. It's the Purple album. Uh, it just came out this past week, and it's some really good, some really good music. Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit metal. I guess you could call it a little bit psychedelic rock and roll, but it's it's all good stuff. I would say there's no fat on the album. It's been trimmed down to just what it needs to be. There's there's really only nine tracks. It's a 10-track album, but the last little outro is really something that could have been left off because it's only about 15 seconds. Uh, but the nine songs on the album are what they need to be, and they're they're beautiful. So that's my one thing. Cool. They, they started with Red. That's right, yeah. So they had their Red album, and that probably came out um, oh, 2007. Five? Okay, no. okay, 07. Okay. It's about 07. Later than I thought. Uh, and, you know, then they had uh, their most recent one before this last one came out four years ago, the Yellow and Green Double album. But they had their their uh, bus accident that uh, put them in the hospital and in therapy for a good amount of time. Two yeah. of the guys broke their backs and they actually left the band. The, the main uh, songwriter, I think, broke an arm and a leg, but has recuperated and, you know, has the band 
uh, going full steam. And I don't know if you'd want to call this a comeback because it's they, you know, they they coped with with what with what was brought to them with that accident. But uh, this this new album is really really it's really good stuff. How would you Are they qu- going through Roy G. Biv? Yeah, I, the, so their first album was was red, then blue, then blue, and then a double album that was yellow and green, and now they have purple. And okay. yeah, it's a little bit sticky. And even the 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 the, the lead the lead singer John Baisley has said that you know that was something that he didn't even like the idea of when he first started it, but now I think they're they're just rolling with it. Uh, what were you gonna ask, John or Josh? Uh, I I don't remember now. Uh, it seemed like the blue album had a lot of nautical sort of themes, if I remember right. But I can't. I don't remember. This may not be true at all. Yeah, I don't know if I would. I don't know. I don't know if I would say that. Uh, it has a lot of sort of swirly sounds to it. I guess I can see like ebbs and flows on that blue album, as well as the the yellow and green album too. There's there's a number of uh, little psychedelic interludes and buildups and and sort of dabbling around with sounds that that build to these crescendos. And I guess it's kind of it's kind of watery. I don't know why I think that, but I I do I think that. Um, but I really enjoyed Yellow and Green, and I remember it being kind of longer than the other mm-hmm. because it's a double album. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. So this one is is like forty minutes, forty five yep, minutes. It is. This is like a forty five minute album. I mean, every song is probably four to six, four to five minutes long. Uh, so they are they they'll take you on a trip. I mean, there are so many songs on the every al, every song on the album has its place. Uh like their first single is the song called Chlorine and Wine, which hits on all like all of these different sort of uh various sounds and tempos and tunes. There's another song that at first I was like, "Ah, oh, I think this is my least favorite song on the album, but it's kind of grown to be my favorite at this point. It's called Kerosene." And it really goes through so many different time changes, so many different sounds. Uh, it's just it's beautiful. If you're a fan of like of, well, I guess if you're a fan of you know badass guitars, you'll like it too. But but the drumming is just out of this world, uh, and and lots and lots of of musicianships on display here. But there's a lot of heart. I mean, it's all it's all heart and soul. What about you, Josh? I have a one thing. I've been listening to a podcast called Serial. And this is actually season two of Serial, another podcast that does seasons. This is a highly listened to, highly successful podcast where they tell one story in multiple sessions. The first was sort of this uh, murder case. And I never really listened to it. I I heard people talking about it, uh, but I never really jumped on the bandwagon because I had missed it and sort of knew some of the details of the case. Season two, though, it just got started, just was just posted the other day. And I suppose they post the whole thing, right? Is that true? Like it's, they'll, they'll post can you the, binge it? No, you cannot. No. Okay. So it's, it's week to week. So okay, at good. this point, I think only the second episode's out, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we've listened to the first two episodes. And this one is about a U.S. soldier in Afghanistan um, abandoning his post. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting. The way they tell the story I think is captivating. And I've heard people who were really big fans of the first season say that they really haven't been hooked by this one. It's not as exciting for them, but so far I've been digging it. I really like this, this method of telling uh, a story to its completion from all angles. It's, it's really, really cool. 
I think they have similar download numbers to us, right? <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. right. <laughs> uh, it, uh, about five minutes after they upload an episode, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the uh, so so I like the first season a lot, and yeah. after I listened to the first episode of this new season, it didn't pull me in right away. And I had heard a little bit about Bergdahl when it was in the news, you know, about a year ago, whenever that mm-hmm. was. Yeah. Uh, but th- the second episode, I think, is really pulls you in yeah it's, it's good it's good yeah it's really good and actually i think serial was a one thing of yours um maybe a year year and a half ago mm-hmm. um, a year ago yeah yeah so uh i i wasn't able to listen to that first season but this is really really good so for anyone who's out there that hasn't checked out serial uh the whole first season i suppose is online and yep. you know you can jump on to season two you don't have to listen to season one it's a separate story check it out awesome yeah and that has been One Thing. I can't get over how awesome that One Thing bumper is. It just makes me so damn happy. So let's talk about the mailbag. Okay, we've got some mail. We've got we've got mail. <laughs> uh, we have some feedback on the old Facebook. We we posted that we were going to be discussing Thongor and Lynn Carter this episode. And so we asked for some feedback, some thoughts about Thongor, and people responded, didn't they, John? Of course they did. That's what Facebook's for. <laughs> That's and that is why we have so many downloads. <laughs> this 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 uh dynamic that we have built. <laughs> um our friend and listener, Matt John, says, uh, I've been reading his Thongor, his being Lynn Carter, Thongor material lately and really enjoy it. He really is a facsimile of Howard's style, but I'd say he's pretty damn good at it. I, and, can, I can agree with that sentiment. Okay. Uh, along the same lines, Tom Doolin says, his writing is nowhere near being on par with Howard, but the book, as well as much of his other works, is enjoyable in spite of its flaws. It's like watching a B-grade kung fu movie. It's not Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee, but it's still a bit of light fun. I really like that analogy. I think that's I think that's bang on. Matt Robinson says, Thongor, that's a hard name to take seriously. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But, John, didn't you tell me, um, and, and actually tell us in the comics episode way back in season one, that Stan Lee actually wanted Thongor as a property and not yeah. Conan? From what I understand, that was what Roy Thomas was going to go get Thongor because he thought he could get him much cheaper than Conan and found out that he could get Conan for the same price as Thongor. But I guess Stan Lee really did push for Thongor because he was enamored with the name, which I just almost can't <laughs> reconcile with with the man, Stan Lee, right? I, he, he's at minimum, I, you, you can feel how you want to feel about him as like a sharer of creatorship and all that stuff, but at minimum... He's a co-creator of the Marvel Age of Comics, and he created all kinds of cool stuff. And he thinks Thongor is a good name for a character. And he like, is a dude that had an eye for names. Yes, like he was the alliterative, like the you know the the powerhouse behind that, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, he, yeah. I, I, it's just hard to reconcile that he was really like Thongor's where it's at. Well, you got to wonder how much uh, Jack Kirby input you know into the names of these characters. And how much Stan Lee did when you hear that Stan Lee really liked the name Thong Thongor, true believer. Can you do a Stan Lee and say Thongor? Thongor. <laughs> uh, it is a hard name to take seriously. I, in fact, 
I started thinking about the uh, the hip hop hit from circa 1999 uh, by Cisco, the thong song. The chorus of which goes thong, the thong, 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 gore. I like it. Yeah. Well, yeah. we should produce a music video with <laughs> Luke twerking. I'll shake it. We should. I'll shake it. So, I'll shake it so good. I'll shake it so good. I'll shake it so good for you. How many beers do you need to get to the twerking level? We're uh, not there yet. No, like 14 more. Yep. <laughs> we got another comment uh, from Juan, and I'm going to struggle with this name, so please uh, please forgive me. Juan Neguarella, and he says, the Unconan. And I thought that was the best comment. Uh, that, that wins the award. <laughs> it's like the old 7-Up uh, TV commercials when 7-Up was the Uncola. Thungor is the Unconan. That's okay. Sometimes you need a light calorie Conan. I feel like he would be the the Sam's Club brand of 7-Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the Kroger brand. Like, uh, yeah. What's like Mountain Lightning or something? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Yep, Mountain Lightning. Dr. K. Dr. K. Diet Thunder. <laughs> Diet Thunder. <laughs> Yep. So we we certainly appreciate the the feedback on Facebook and uh, got a kick out of all of those comments. Um, and we're going to make light of Thongor, I believe, tonight. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we didn't enjoy the story per se. It's just it really is a pastiche of, of Conan. And you can see shades of how. So he says. Well, I guess I should read the actual question I sent. Jeff, we're going to record an episode about Thongor and Lynn Carter tonight. Do you have any thoughts about Carter and his legacy as an author, editor, or scholar? And Jeff responded, His legacy as an editor is his most significant contribution. He's essentially responsible for creating what we think of as the sword and sorcery canon. As a scholar, his imaginary worlds was the first of its kind. Maybe we'll talk about imaginary worlds in just a bit. Not particularly deep or insightful, more of a survey, but it was the beginning of fantasy lit crit. As an author, not so much. <laughs> and then he says, for what it's worth, Stan Lee wanted to adapt Thongor instead of Conan because he thought the name sounded cooler. And I said, do you think DeCamp or Carter was more responsible for the Conan pastiche works? I have this picture of DeCamp as a mustache twirling villain and Carter as his henchman for some reason. And he said, that's about right, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so I think in this story that is the Robert E. Howard saga, you know, you have lots of players, and we've talked about Howard and Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and how they communicated with each other and built off of one another. And then we've talked a bit about how Elsprig de Camp and Lynn Carter took these these works by Howard and calling them posthumous collaborations, sort of took them, added to them, changed them, and sort of made them their own. And in doing so, said some really disparaging things about Howard and his abilities. And perhaps Elsprig de Camp is really sort of the villain in the play, but Lynn Carter is sort of on his side or on his team. Like he's his dude, you know, his confidence man, I guess. His button man. I don't know. His hype man. Well, yeah, he was. I mean, he was a. Uh, he was an admirer of De Camp, right? For and, sure. And like he says that in the intro, to the volume that I think we all read, uh, here today. Uh, but I, I guess to be fair, I don't know nearly as much about the specifics of Lynn Carter's relationship to Howard as I've learned about uh, De Camp's relationship to Howard. Uh, it seems like Lynn Carter, to me 
right now with what I know, I'm prefacing all of that, <laughs> did not say the disparaging things about Howard's prose that DeCamp did. DeCamp would write and make things quote unquote better uh, when he took a hand at it. I don't know if Lynn Carter felt like he did that whenever he would take any liberties or, or uh, uh, co-author papers with any of these post posthumous you know posthumous publications uh but maybe i just don't know enough about it but it seems like lynn carter had a pure sort of intention just with my lay understanding at this point i i get the impression that lynn carter wanted to be robert e howard and Elsprig de camp wanted to be the person who knew the most about robert e howard but actually kind of wasn't so i have a couple of quotes um that Lynn Carter made about Howard. And these are from an essay titled Conan and Conantics. Okay. And, uh, I think it's Al Heron that wrote this, but I need to make sure I'll correct it if I'm wrong in the show notes. And so in this, uh, essay, the topic is sort of these posthumous collaborations slash pastiche works. And so Lynn Carter wrote in the introduction to Conan, the Buccaneer, which is released by Lancer books in 1971. Uh, noted that he and Elsprague uh, probably added more wordage to the Conan saga than Howard himself wrote originally, as though that's a good thing. They added more words, not necessarily better words or, or words that are just as good. Not addressing the quality, just the sheer number of words. Um, Carter writes further that we have further tightened the internal logic of the saga as a whole by using Thothamon of Stygia as our chief villain who frequently makes an appearance throughout the saga as a whole. So they were trying to tie Conan all together, all these stories together into one cohesive narrative versus Howard, who constantly said, look, we're, I'm trying to tell these stories as though Conan was an old man telling you about various points of his life. And no one ever tells their story as, you know, a, a cohesive narrative from the beginning with a middle to the end. Right. Right, And so he's just sort of regaling you about stories from long ago. Like there was this one time I went to this crazy city that was all inside and underground. And there was this weird woman who was really into spanking this girl. And, and there was a <laughs> monster that damn near killed me, but I killed it. And um, so anyway, well, Carter, that's Carter that's himself. important thing to talk about, right? And Lynn Carter is a good introduction to this idea of, fans becoming the creators which is such a big part of genre and comic book literature sure the forefathers die out or the the forebears of the literature die out and then the fans start running the asylum and things take on a decidedly different turn lynn carter and elsbrake de camp they were not as preoccupied with making a fantastical conan world as much as they were like adding an internal tiktok logic to the whole thing which is what a fan wants. They want it all to sort of plop into place. Exactly. And it drives them crazy when you throw a, an infinite crisis or a crisis on infinite earths <laughs> in the way of their uh, continuity, right? Yeah. I don't know, Luke, what do you think about that? I feel like you've got some feelings on that, that particular topic. Maybe we'll d discuss it more later in the episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's plow ahead. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we so, can I, – I, I think we're just going to keep circling back to, uh, to Lynn Carter, the – the man and we his intentions will. like throughout the entirety of absolutely of this in the next episode. This absolutely will be a discussion of Lynn Carter first and foremost and, and Thongor secondarily. So we're looking at Lynn 
through the lens of of Thongorn. But one more thing, one more thing that that Carter said um, is that Howard did occasionally make up a good name, such as Cull or Volusia. Uh, and he may have been wiser than we assume when he borrowed names from history rather than coining them himself. Generally, when he does make up a good name, or ge- sorry, generally when he does make up a name, it is a pretty uninspired one. <laughs> so let's keep that thought in mind as we as we move into the story and begin s- discussing some of these names that Carter um, made up for Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria. <laughs> By Gorm. By Gorm, Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. It's Don Heron, not Al Al Heron. There we go. Don I think Heron. I said Bob Heron. Bob maybe. Heron. We, we keep messing <laughs> that guy's name up, and and uh, he's but actually somebody we should probably try and get on the show at some point. So he's the. I mean, he's he's written a number of different things, but the that dark barbarian yep. mega pack that you can get on Amazon is his material that's been repackaged. I think a few different times. Yeah, I think he edited and put the 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 works together, and some of those essays are his, but they're not all him i think there's a mark finn essay in there and maybe a jeffrey shanks as well cool um so lynn carter his full name is linwood vrooman carter vrooman vrooman yeah that's that's a unique name uh born june 9th 1930 uh died february 7th 1988 age of 57 uh he was recognized and widely known as a science fiction and fantasy author poet and editor for ballantine adult fantasy what else is notable about our friend lynn Basically, his middle name. <laughs> Vrooman. One thing that I think is cool about him is that he was a member of this strange secret society, almost, this literary group called the Trapdoor Spiders. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Him and Asimov and some others, right? Yeah, El Sprague de Camp was part of it. This is a society that was established in 1944, and it was sort of a dinner party sort of thing, like a, a club, and they roasted one another but the way they did it was they would invite a guest and then they would haze that guest so whoever hosted the dinner would invite somebody that the rest of the group who intellectually i guess were really really smart people right like we're we're talking about some academics and literary i'm hesitant to say giants but people who were famous and they would just roast these poor people who thought they were showing up to to hang out with Isaac Asimov or Elsprig de Camp or somebody to talk about books or whatever and get a dinner out of it. They, yeah, they would light these 13 black candles and that would be the sign that the roasting would be would begin. And you sent us a story. I can't remember the guy's name that wrote it. He was an artist at, uh, for Ballantine Del Rey. And worked under Del Rey of the Del Rey books that we've used for so many of our seasons. And he's invited to this dinner and they eat the food. The waiter lights the candles and Isaac Asimov asks him, why do you exist? And then he stammers through his response and breaks down in tears afterwards. Because when Isaac Asimov asks you a question like that, what other recourse are you left with but to cry? (laughs) He says, and this is... His name is Ian Summers. Ah, uh, yeah. And he talks about this this event on a blog that we found on archive.org. So Asimov locked eyes with him and boomed, Ian Summers, why do you exist? And he says, I took a gulp of sipping brandy. I was silent. I had not given the question a moment's thought in my first 35 years. 
I filibustered for over 30 minutes, fearing another question. I felt unworthy to be in the company of such great men. I remember thinking, oh my God, Isaac Asimov knows my name. <laughs> I judged myself for not having the right answers, for not being good enough. I vaguely remember presenting my credentials, my accomplishments, my family and work histories. And then Asimov said, thank you, Ian. I worked hard to hold back tears. That was not the case in the taxi cab. On the ride home, I sobbed like a baby. <laughs> I realized that I had spent most of my life as a human doing, not a human being. I did not know the difference. I tried to do exactly what well-meaning caretakers expected. I guessed at what they wanted. I guessed at what normal was and rebelled. I became the son I thought my parents wanted. I failed at becoming the good husband without knowing what that meant. I achieved other people's goals, and consequently, I was empty. I was fear-based. I would do anything to be seen. I had no idea why I existed or who I was. It took another decade to feel comfortable in my skin. So Asimov, with one question, completely deconstructed this guy. <laughs> we should we should restart this group. I don't know if we're mean enough. <laughs> I don't we I don't know. Nice. Maybe we are. Go ahead. He was part of this group with uh, L. Sprague, um, Isaac Asimov, Lester Del Rey of Del Rey Publishing, uh, whose um, Conan reprints we've been leaning on uh, for a while now, along with other prominent authors and academics. And this group evidently still met all up into the 80s and 90s. And there's a fictional version from an Asimov book, right? I think so, yeah. He, he used this group as a, a literary trope in some of his, his works, a, uh, a literary discussion like group or guild that Went on adventures, maybe? I'm not sure. I've never read it's any of the stories. Mysteries from what I read. And Lynn Carter is featured in, in those stories as one of the members of the Black Widowers, I think they call themselves. Okay. In the book. But the Trapdoor Spiders, man, what a what a group to find yourself at, at <laughs> dinner with. Yeah, and this is one of the classic like science fiction fantasy like boys clubs. I don't wanna I, I mean, at that point in time, that's what this was. Sure. Uh, but the same way that, you know, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and, and those fellows we get together. Uh, oh, what do they call themselves? The, are they, the Quietlings? Are they the, or the Inklings, maybe? The Inklings, that's what it was. Yeah, but they would get together at the the Babe and the Bird was the name of the pub that they would, that they would hang out. You know, it was a place for exchanging ideas. And, you know, we've been talking on about... The overlaps in all of these these writers talking specifically last episode about Howard and uh, Clark Ashton Smith and and H.P. Lovecraft about how they would you know potentially interact with one another and maybe through other people here is like real one on one interactions amongst these people across from the table for one another and you know these were areas in the in the the sixties and onward you could actually have that kind of correspondence like like actual face-to-face -face exchanges yeah and you know that that is pretty cool in and of itself that these literary folks these academics who studied uh various fields like from physics to astronomy to uh other sciences to literature uh were all part of this trapdoor spiders club it's cool though like to me the the important thing as we're talking about this is that like, this is the next step in terms of creator interactions. And I don't want to say fandom because it's about the, the creators themselves rather than having to correspond through magazines and through the actual letters, you know, they were seeing one another at conventions. They were coming into contact with one another. The publishing world was much more organized. So, you know, 
you start to see like these little uh, supper clubs and, and groups that could get together and talk uh, within these, you know, within these genres. And building on that, another such group that Carter uh, actually helped found was uh, called Saga, which stood for Swordsmen and Sorcerers Guild of America. And nice. this is sort of a loose proliferation of uh, heroic fantasy authors that was founded by Carter, L. Sprague de Camp, and John Jakes. Have you ever heard of John Jakes before? Did you, are you familiar with this guy? No, I'm not a fan. Um, he's a historical fiction author, and I didn't know who he was either, but he penned the North and South series. And North and South was adapted as miniseries for television during the 1980s. And uh, it's a Civil War miniseries that my mom actually really loves. So I remember watching this when I was a kid. And really not understanding what was going on at all. <laughs> um, but in addition to uh, reading one another's works and giving criticism and feedback, uh, they gave one another ridiculous titles. Uh, Carter was called the Purple Druid of the Gibbering Horde of the Slime Pits of Zothiaka. Uh, DeCamp was the Supreme Sadist of the Reptile Men of Yag. Jake's uh, the ambassador without portfolio to the partly squamous, partly rugose vegetable things of the so South Polar City of Nugyub Gla. And uh, evidently, Michael Moorcock had some limited um, participation in this group, and he was dubbed the veiled thaumaturge of the mauve barbarians of Ning. When he wasn't tripping. Yeah, when he wasn't tripping. <laughs> uh, or when he was tripping. And uh, Moorcock evidently has said that he wasn't really an active member in the group. But this is a group that uh, eventually uh, Carter sort of edited together a, an anthology series called Flashing Swords, which showcased stories from the members of this group. And there were several editions of Flashing Swords uh, published throughout the, the mid and late 70s. And they created and sponsored the Gandalf Awards, uh, which were administered in, in concert by the World Science Fiction Convention um, from 1974 through 1981. Uh, the first winner of the Gandalf Award was J.R.R. Tolkien. And there are some other big names on the, the list here. Fritz Leiber, uh, L. Sprague de Camp, uh, Andre Norton, Paul Anderson, Ursula Le Guin, Ray Bradbury, and astonishingly, in 1981, C.L. Moore, which I found really interesting to learn just today. That cool. Yeah, that she was recognized by the World uh, Science Fiction Convention and the Gandalf Awards in 1981. But this award is now defunct and I believe has been replaced by the, the World Fantasy Award, uh, you know, the little H.P. Lovecraft bust that is, I guess, not any longer going to be H.P. Lovecraft. This is, but this was different than that, though, right? I mean, they were doing the the uh, World Fantasy Award like concurrent with this, I think. I believe so, but now they're like this Gandalf Awards is no longer like it's it's not being uh, bestowed okay. any longer. Okay, I think it's what cool. Thing is, we could start awarding it to people. We could start giving people the Gandalf Award, yeah. And then they would have to talk to us. I like that. Uh, I like that the people that are named here. This is pretty cool. I mean, I didn't realize it, but I just pulled up the award list. Three of the people on this list are women. I mean, Andrea mm -hmm. Norton and Ursula K. Le Guin uh, and C. L. Moore. That's that's pretty cool. That's. I mean, it's still not half. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, exactly. But uh, but there's a fair representation here of the the preeminent uh, 
like speculative fiction writers that were women you know of of you know at least the common market yeah um he goes on lynn carter goes on to as as jeff shanks mentioned in his message uh sort of release these works that are focused on uh criticism and analysis of various literary giants uh one called tolkien a look behind the lord of the rings uh lovecraft a look behind the cthulhu mythos and uh, these, as Jeff pointed out, are really sort of early examples of literary criticism, which is is pretty cool and pretty exciting. So uh, Carter got the ball rolling with this whole lit crit scene. Uh, unfortunately, some people say that uh, Carter gets so many facts wrong with these different works that it's, it's largely worthless. Um, but still, this type of, of literary criticism was new on the scene at the time. And so I think he should be commended and at least recognized for getting the ball rolling, even if maybe some of his works were maybe biased or not properly researched. I'm not sure what the the issue with them really might be because I haven't read them. Maybe he was right then, but now his work has spurned further research and people have disproven some of the stuff that he said. Sure. It's always that's healthy academic attitude, right? I think it's always hard to break the ice with things, you know? Yeah. But we gather here tonight to talk not about the literary criticism, the posthumous collaborations. Uh, no, we gather to talk about Lynn Carter's first novel, not the first that he wrote, but the first that he had published, Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria. So, Luke, do you have that publication information for Thongor? Uh, what I have here is that it was uh, published by Ace Books in 65 as uh, the Wizard of Lemuria. Uh, and I think all three of us have read the revision that was at least first put out by Berkeley Books, and it's the the readily available Kindle version as well. Uh, that's that's called Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria, and that was that was re-released in '69. That's what you guys read, right? It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think both of you read the Kindle edition, which you can pick up for what five dollars? Oh, less, yeah, like less than that. I think like three and a half or something. Okay, three ninety nine. Uh, we'll post a link to it in the show notes if you haven't read Thongor yet. It's you know that for three ninety nine, this is certainly worth uh, a couple of hours to uh, to read through and get a sense of uh, Carter's heroic fiction. I read Four the three of your soft Taco Bell tacos. Yeah, <laughs> you don't need those tacos. We're coming up on the new year. You're going to want to make a New Year's resolution. Resolve to let go of the soft tacos. Read more books. Eat less tacos. Yeah, read more books. <laughs> that that should be that could be a Chromecast T-shirt. <laughs> Um, I got the uh, Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria Berkeley Medallion book through Interlibrary Loan. The cover price is $1.25, uh, which I think is really cool. So I, I picked this up through the library. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a classy old paperback right there. Yeah, it's pretty neat. This is the kind of paperback you would find at half price wrapped in plastic. Yeah, they're, they're the best. And I hope we can talk about the, uh, the Ballantine adult fantasy line here at some point too like we'll circle back around to sure. it. but those are some of the coolest books like well, let's talk yeah. about it now like what what is what what's the deal with those ballantine editions well they're just i mean i think this is where lynn carter is actually most famous and gets the most like props from from everybody is that you know he was the the editor and primary force with this this line of reissues of classic uh fantasy books and so they were put out by Ballantine. There were a number of them. I think maybe they started in sixty nine. You're right. Uh and they ran through like seventy four. 
Uh, and I remember talking about this in a in a class I took like when I was an undergrad uh, that you know the sort of force that they had. But like over the past few episodes, we've po- posted a number of of uh, bits of art from like a Clark Ashton Smith story, and then the one of the Lovecraft. They're the covers from those Ballantine books. They're some of the classic uh, weird fiction and like sword and sorcery. Uh, bits of art and issue, like versions of these books that are that are out there and available. Yeah, and I think that is certainly Carter's most enduring um, contribution to literature is uh, serving as editor as uh, of these Ballantine editions and and sort of getting these works by these by these authors who didn't really have a lot of exposure didn't really have a lot of distribution at the time getting those works out there so people could read them yeah the the same way that you know Elsprague did a lot for for Howard or August Derleth did you know great things for getting uh Lovecraft's work out there you know Lynn Carter did this for a whole suite of different like seminal bits of of uh like fantasy lore like to get them out to the world yeah and in doing so, kickstarted the sword and sorcery uh, renaissance of the 1960s, which influenced rock music, uh, pop culture, uh, a, a ton of eager young authors. You know, the, I, I think that Carter's contributions to sword and sorcery can't, uh, and, and pulp literature, can't be minimized. And they shouldn't be minimized. He did a lot. Even if you don't like the Conan pastiches, Carter did a lot. I'd love to have like a complete run of all these adult Valentine like fantasy books. I think that would be pretty sweet. That would be sweet. I bet there's a lot of them on eBay. Yeah, I I've looked around a little bit, and a lot of them you can get affordably, but I'm sure that there's some high dollar versions of them. I bet. So tonight, let's let's go into or, or for right now, let's go into. Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria. Okay, yes. <laughs> Sorry for the, the derailment. No, that's okay, because <laughs> I, I think that the plot in this story is so light that we really won't spend a lot of time on it, but uh, I do want to get your guys' feeling about this book. So tonight we'll discuss chapter one through seven, and then for our next episode, we'll finish the book up and go through chapter 14, I believe, is the last chapter in the book. 15, actually. Um, so... We'll set everything up, and then after the new year, probably, we'll knock them down with Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria. So, John, were there any lemurs in this story? There are no lemurs, and it's a, it's a disappointment. There's a dearth, a dearth <laughs> of lemurs. <laughs> it's a damn shame. That's a damn shame. It is. Which but, is weird, because we're on the continent known as Lemuria. This is Thongor's home, this ancient place that in this book is sort of... Uh, placed in the Pleistocene epoch, right, Josh? <laughs> That's right. That's right, John. So, which you are an expert. I don't know if I would say that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if uh, <laughs> his statements about dinosaurs wandering the earth that doesn't <laughs> ring quite right with what's around during the Pleistocene epoch. That, that would be more the Mesozoic era. That's right. You know, the, <laughs> he missed the, it by a few thousand years. A few million. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we also don't have fully formed human beings in the so, Pleistocene, right? Dude, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, not so. Not let's, in my world. Let's talk. Let's put everything into perspective. <laughs> so, dinosaurs went extinct. Were were 
we widely hold. Let me start that over. Dinosaurs went extinct. We widely hold uh, about sixty-five million years ago, with the exception of some giant lizards, right? Crocodilians, um, and and their their ilk, because they they probably would side with the the dragon kings. I would guess in a conflict. Um, so the dinosaurs go extinct 65 million years ago, widely held that it's due to the collision of an asteroid with the planet earth, um, changing climate conditions, uh, that were no longer conducive for the giant lizards to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And then there were these things called mammals right. that came up in the, the Cenozoic, what, yeah. the, the age of mammals. That's right. So the Pleistocene, to put this in perspective, the Pleistocene started somewhere between two and a half million years ago and 1.8 million years ago. Textbooks tend to vary. And uh, goes all the way up to the last glacial maximum about 11,000 or so years ago. So okay. we're talking about a period of time. Uh, where there were several ice ages, and I'm saying this in quotes, uh, several periods of glacial expansion and contraction, as well as the evolution of hominids, of which Homo sapiens is a member. So Homo habilis is our most ancient uh, common ancestor uh, that we share with other uh, species in the genus Homo, like Homo neanderthalensis. Um so, no, during the Pleistocene, there were no uh, fully formed uh, uh, modern humans. But well, Thongor is a, is a Neanderthal? No, Thongor is not a Neanderthal. Thongor is either an Australopithecus or a Homo habilis. Okay. Which are the precursors to modern humans. But I don't think Lynn Carter knew any of that. <laughs> well, that's okay. It, he didn't have to because he was out to write uh, a... Uh, pastiche sword and sorcery story. And so in our fictional Lemuria, which existed 1.8 million years ago in the, the history of our planet, there are dinosaurs and there are people scientifically, probably not in, well, he's in, not dealing, doing scientists uh, or scientifically he's doing it. Theosophically. I think. That's, this that is, is true. More of a, a theosophical Lemuria. Remind us about Theosophy and Lemuria. Well, briefly in uh, 250 words or less. Okay. Madame Blavatsky of Theosophical Fame has posited in her writings, uh, such as the secret doctrine, that Lemuria is host to the third root race. And her third root race is a group of seven foot tall egg laying hermaphrodites who have a third eye in their forehead that grant them psychic powers. They are corrupted through the discovery of physical form and the discovery of sexual relations, and they perform bestial acts, bestiality acts, uh -oh. and this corrupts them even further and gives rise to the fourth uh, root race, which are the Atlanteans. And the third root race is descended from the second root race, obviously, which is from Hyperborea, <laughs> which is directly referenced in... Thongor of Lemuria. That's that true. The Hyperboreans have disappeared, and their remnants, the Dragon Kings, have made their home here on ancient Lemuria. Her Lemuria is situated in the Pacific, around the Ring of Fire, basically. Coastally, uh, California would be included in the Blavatsky Lemuria, as well as including peaks that would now be like Hawaii and stuff like that. But much like Atlantis, it was destroyed 
before Atlantis and, and gave rise to that civilization in the theosophical canon. How many words is that? I, I didn't count. That. I, I lost count. Um, but that was a good that was a good summary. So so this sort of sets the stage for this line of thinking, and it definitely falls in line with Howard's mythos in a sense, right? Like these different races, sort of, I guess, building up civilizations, then falling back into barbarism, and other races taking their place, yeah. and. We've read a couple in this season, a couple of Cull stories. So we've talked about Howard's Atlantis, but we have not talked really about Howard's Lemuria. Do you guys think that Carter was trying to fit Thongor into the Conan sort of canon? Like, does this Thongor's Lemuria fit with within the framework of Cull's Atlantis and Conan's Hyborian age? I feel like he wanted it to with his sort of statements about the Hyperborean age, right? I felt like he left he left a gap there just in case he got the chance to say, "Oh yeah, totally." Uh, Thongor begat Cole. Cole begat Conan. Conan begat me. And I think that it's it must have been a really fun sandbox to play in, right? Like you know that Carter really loved these stories. Uh, it's obvious. Yeah. It's obvious that that he loved Robert E. Howard. Um. So it must have been really cool for him to have written his own barbarian story, to have sort of put his own spin on things, to have done these pastiche works, and uh, sort of maybe played around with this idea of trying to fit it into the framework of Howard's stories. So in this book, we're in Lemuria. It's millions of years before present date. And we open in a, a tavern, right? Uh, with Thongor getting t- into a conflict with a young nobleman. Yeah, and so what unfolds here is you've seen this story before. You know what's going to happen pretty much with every beat that's that's playing out here, you know, throughout the novel, at least as far as we've gotten. Thongor, he don't want to fight, but this guy's a douchebag that keeps, like, throwing jabs at him verbally. Right. He's sparring, so Thongor's got to kill a man. That's right. <laughs> But why? So he made a bet with this young nobleman, right? Yeah. In in a uh, a race, some some type. It's not a horse race though. It's some type of flying dragon. God, uh, they're betting on of, ponies. <laughs> yeah, essentially they're betting on ponies, and Thongor wins, and the nobleman is indignant about it and doesn't want to pay him because Thongor is an illiterate barbarian from the northern wastes. That sounds familiar, right? But Thongor doesn't cotton to bet welchers. That's true, yeah. And so uh, the noble, who whose name is Jelled Malk, um, doesn't want to pay uh, and takes a swing at Thongor. Thongor gives him a, uh, a drink of wine, ironically enough, by pouring the wine over his head, and then says, now we're friends, right? Like, you took a punch at me, I poured wine on you, everything's cool. <laughs> but this is a young nobleman, so he tries to kill Thongor. Thongor is a superior fighter. Uh, he deflects some of these blows and shows that he's a superior fighter, essentially knocking the young nobleman, Malk, down and taking his sword away, then giving the sword back and saying, okay, now we're friends, right? Everything's fine. We're going to cool down. It's all good. And Malk tries to stab him and cuts him on the arm. And Thongor at that point loses his shit. 
Here comes the stabby stab. That's right. And snicked. It, <laughs> snicked, bub. Snickety snick, bub. Uh, <laughs> the, the barbarian takes out the nobleman and as his reward gets clubbed over the head. And he the tries li- to walk out. That's my favorite part, I think, of all that we've read. And he's like, he thinks he's just like, okay, fixes his collar and he's yep. going to like walk out of this joint. <laughs> Everything's cool now. This is how we do things back in uh, Valkarth, right? If someone stabs at you, you stab them, and if they die, then you walk away. But nope, that uh, that's not how things go in in Thirdus, which is the city that we're in. And at this point, it's abundantly clear that Lynn Carter's naming system is surpassed by Howard's, despite what he thinks. Like exactly at this at this point, like I I realize that it it can be interesting to throw out far-fetched names for things that you later describe, or maybe you don't describe at all. You just throw out names for things, uh, and it's up to the reader to sort of paint their own picture. But but the naming here is just confusing, as we'll talk about. Yeah, it well, gets... We, sorry, it gets more confusing. Sorry, John. Go. No, you're fine. Some of the things we read online, I thought, painted this quite well in saying that this is Lynn Carter saying, what if Conan woke up on Mars like John Carter did? And he encounters all these people with made-up Martian names that are set on Lemuria instead. Right. So instead of the, the king or the duke or the prince of, of the city, it's the Sark of Thirtis Fall Thurid, who is the, the king of Thirtis. So it, it, it makes it kind of difficult. Uh, he also throws out a reference to a vampiric plant, which is called a slith, um, that apparently the king of the city is fond of feeding his uh, uh, prisoners to. And why not? That would be pretty boss. Sure. But we've seen these things before, right? Yes. And we also learn that Gorm is the chief deity of either Lemuria or the northern barbarian tribes. (laughs) Gorsh. So we have this, this, in a sense, we do have this living, breathing world. But Carter's world building is nowhere near as efficient as Howard's world building. We've talked about how in an economy of words, Howard has described everything that Conan sort of believes in terms of theology, everything he thinks about in terms of civilization. And here we only have what four, five pages and we're left with a a whole lot of confusing names and uh, some, some sort of confusing um, motivations for murder and and vengeance here, but it is it is familiar. It is. It's all <laughs> as as anybody that's looked into this too has probably seen the comparisons of this to like a an RPG com- campaign. It's it's that kind of story. <laughs> you know yeah. this story because you've read the stories and taken them for the inspiration for the story that you're about to tell here. It's an old pair of slippers. Yeah, they fit so good. So we move into chapter two, Black Wings over Chush. <laughs> I kept saying Kush. Yeah, I'm sure it's Kush. Like Hindu Kush. Yeah. The cushiest Kush. The cushiest of the Kush. <laughs> uh, John chap- knows what I mean. <laughs> um, so Thongor wakes up and uh, finds out that he has been imprisoned. Dude, he's got to get out. Uh,. <laughs> <laughs> so he does get out. Yeah, he escapes. Uh, and actually, I guess the escape is in the last chapter. Yeah. Uh, he, With his best friend, Aid. 
Yeah. All, is it Ald Thermos? Mine, it's A-I-D, Aid Termus. Aid Termus, okay. In oh, my, yeah, mine was... Literally Aid. I think mine was A... Oh, well, we were the same version, so it was Aid, A-I-D? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, th- I, th- I saw Ald Thermus. And this is actually in Chapter 1. Uh, Thongor tries to escape in a similar manner to Conan trying to escape in some, some of the stories we've read. He asks for food from the guard. The guard's like, well... I don't really think I should feed you, but I guess I could because you're going to die tomorrow anyway. And Thongor is like, yeah, you bring that food in here and I'm going to club you with this chain. Uh, and as soon as the guard comes in, he says uh, he gets ready to club him. And it turns out it's his ally, Ald Thermos, who was an, uh, a thief and a pirate that at some point in some convoluted explanation, uh, Thongor rescued at some point. So he owes Thongor a favor and heard that Thongor was in prison, so he came in to rescue him. So he gets rescued. A series of fortunate events for our hero Thongor of Lemuria. Sure. Yeah, he runs up topside. He he's able to get on a uh, an airboat. Yeah, like, the, the floater. <laughs> the, the floater, <laughs> which is which is pretty. Uh, you guys know I hate the hate the term steampunk, but it's a pretty steampunky. Uh, little plot device that's introduced here in like 1965 you don't hate steampunk you're wearing you're wearing gears and you've got all kinds of turbines and (laughs) (laughs) generators on you right now but yes this is was reminded of another thing from this floater is that what we're calling it well that was that was what it was called the floater oh i guess i skimmed over that part uh (laughs) edgar casey talks about flight in atlantis uh, a lot and talks about how they had perfected flight. They had these ships that were powered by Firestone, not the tire, but like <laughs> some sort of uranium like compound. And I kind of thought maybe this is uh, maybe this is Carter's attempt to say like, oh, the Lemurians, they started this, but then the Atlanteans later perfect it. I don't, I doubt that, but it seems sort of like an interesting connection. That is cool. Yeah, I like <laughs> Time out. <laughs> Again.
So it was just water? Uh, no, it's not just water. It's bourbon and beer. Oh. Yeah, so the second episode in a row, I've cleaned Luke's floor. Now it's in your, now it's in your head, man. <laughs> no, 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 it's going to happen every time. But now it smells good in there, like bourbon uh, It beer. smells like Resolve, and Luke's oh. sitting in the carpet cleaner, so his feet are wet. Yeah, it's all right. I'm sorry. It's okay, dude. <laughs> God damn it. I'm the worst. Did you leave the recorder on? Yeah, everything's on. <laughs> surprise in there for you. Yeah, sure. Okay, so let me see where we were. Steampunk and shit. Oh, yeah, steampunk and shit. So, yeah, we have... <laughs> This flying ship, the floater, that was invented by Fall Thurid's alchemist, Ulim Fawn. And he is like the court vizier or wizard or advisor or something. And he uses this metal, which has the properties of anti-gravity. And it also has these rotors. So it's basically a helicopter, like it's a prehistoric helicopter. That's like wound springs that power it. Exactly. And so... Is it on the cover of your book? Yes. Actually, it is. I can't remove the label um, because it's from Interlibrary Alone. But yeah, it is on the cover of my book. Is a, a dragon flying and, and sort of trying to take this flying ship down. You can't take the sky from me, Mr. Dragon. <laughs> That's right. So... Uh, Thangor is flying in this helicopter that he can wind up every six hours and direct wherever he wants it to go. And there's a badass bow that's layer upon layer of bone that's there as a weapon. Yeah, it's made of dragon gut. He's flying, he's flying, he's flying. He thinks he's got a plan, right? He's going to become a mercenary. He's got a plan to go, you know, just lay in and get some work. Uh, but thankfully for the fate of the universe, from from what I can tell with the way the story's going, <laughs> that's right. Uh, he falls asleep, oversleeps, and happens to drift in the wrong direction, uh, basically over the heart of Africa. But it's not Africa because we're in Lemuria here. It's the Kush. It's the Kush. So yeah, he sets the springs, uh, figures that he has about six hours or so before he has to wind him again, and falls asleep. But is so worn out from the past 36 hours of activity that he sleeps too long. And when he wakes up, the ship is no longer wound. Right, John? Correct. (laughs) He wakes up and he's like, this doesn't look right. He's over some jungles, the Kush as we're calling it. And he, his, he realizes that he overslept and the wind pushed him off course because he was just floating there. And now he's attacked by lizard hawks. Lizard hawks coming to wreck the day. Like screeching talons on metal, and he gets all worked up, and he goes and works the the dragon gut war bow, just like He Man would. Right. He starts shooting at these pterodactyls. I thought this chapter was very well written, actually. I was pretty pumped. This is actually maybe the best chapter so far. Yeah, he uses this mega bow to kill, or at least wound this dragon, and eventually kill it. But two more show up. Yeah, and they're mad, so they like start chomping on the war, the the battle airship, the steampunk boat, and it starts going down. And a Tyrannosaurus Rex is like, "Yeah, yeah." So for this thing to sort of slide into his maw, and it's just gently floating above his mouth, and the uh, the other dinosaurs drag it back up in the sky. It seems like a very series of comedic <laughs> effects here with dinosaurs involved. That yeah, I giggled at. 
So these these uh, lizard hawks, I guess, are pterodactyls, but they're also called Grax. And the dragon in the jungle, which I guess is a T-Rex, like you said, John, is called a Dwark. And As one would. Like you would. I, I don't like when fantasy authors give these these un I, I don't know these fantasy names to something that you're you you alluded to, the, to this earlier yeah Luke that, that there's no reason to call this a dwarf um this is this is a big dragon and it wants to eat him yeah and so rather than feeling more embroiled or more enmeshed in a fantasy world I felt sort of taken out of it because I'm like well this is a this is a dinosaur rather than quality world building it's it's like D and D naming. <laughs> the same, like like coming up with names for things is not the same as building a world. If you and and like like at one point later on in this story, like to give Lynn Carter some credit, he makes some illusion, or maybe it's here shortly. Uh, like Thongor is talking about navigating by the stars, mm-hmm. and he he uses some names. For constellations that probably mean something like I can't remember like one of them's clear like he calls it the boreal star so the north star mm-hmm. like in in this world there's still a north star uh, he names a few constellations and that's world building like it gives you a sense of history and heritage and culture for for Thongor and his people that's effective like in another point there's a talk there's a there's a reference to like a, a myth of of like the old dragon or the giant dragon that that ate something, and that in and of itself, like telling, uh, making a reference to a story that exists within the culture, is an effective bit of world building. But calling something a gronk or a dwark or a, or whatever is not effective world building. Agreed. <laughs> you can say the big flying reptilian, and still get the point across. Or even the dragons. And yeah. describe them so that people go, oh, these are pterodactyls. Yeah. Which is what... Lizard hawks. That's pretty descriptive. Right. And that works, right? Yeah. Yeah. But like in Howard's Red Nail story, you know, there's a dragon, but we all can tell that it's a dinosaur, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, it, there's not a made-up name that Conan says, oh, that's a dwarf. It just sounds... It rings false. Yeah. it take It takes you out of it rather than being some sort of touchstone that makes you recognize something in this world. Yeah. So anyway, these, these pterodactyls attack the, the ship, uh, the T-Rex is, uh, or the dwarf is distracted by eating one of the dead, um, um, lizard hawks and the ship comes down out of the sky and, and gets wedged in a tree and Thongor is on the ground. Yep. Whirly bird down. Thongor is like, hell, I don't know which direction I need to go. So I guess he just sort of chooses direction. And I think he bases this, this selection on uh, moving away from the jungle dragon. Because yeah. he can tell it's hunting him. He can feel its footsteps vibrating the ground. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because he ends up getting chased here shortly. Like he's so, so he strikes out. He doesn't have time nor the inclination to climb any of these big lodifer trees. Uh, and, and even then, even uh, if he did, there are slithes in right. the branches. <laughs> the right. lodifer trees are covered with slithes. Right. <laughs> uh, these vampiric <laughs> vines that would grab him and, and drink his blood. Which is a cool idea. When you world build and have like this kind of elaborate ecology for a species, that, that works. That does work, yeah. And there there's some 
good scientific basis for saying, hey, these vampiric plants would not be on the ground. They would need some sort of sunlight. And in a jungle like this, they're not going to get that sunlight on the forest floor. They're going to get that in the branches. Right. So it makes good sense that he wouldn't climb a tree. And on the forest floor, everything is really swampy. The ground is really soggy. It's hard going. Uh, he's wearing himself out. In, in essence, he's tired and he, his endurance is diminishing. He goes a bunch of miles. There's miles. And then what's the other unit of distance that's presented here oh i didn't like it so i didn't make note of it uh i should have (laughs) it was confusing uh because it uses there's references to miles and then is it verm or zerm like interchangeably and so i wasn't for sure if it was you know you don't totally get if it's a unit of measurement or like like distance or time or what but it doesn't matter how many miles or verms you cross because still the jungle lizard is going to catch you and try to put you in its gaping, corpse-smelling maw. That's right, and it's getting closer. It's like the scene in Jurassic Park where the uh, the water is sort of vibrating. You can see the ripples in yep. it. And so he's freaking out, and he runs uh, sort of recklessly into a vine, and it's a slith. It oh, grabs yeah. him, and it bites him, and it starts drinking his blood almost immediately. And I do like the the prose here. Like at one point, it talks about the petals turning a bluish purplish color from his blood. Yeah, like that's that's strong imagery. The way that the way that this evil evil blood sucking plant is doing its dirty deed. Uh, he's able to sort of like slough it off, right? And this is about where we get the wizard showing up, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, out of from out of nowhere, seemingly. Uh, just as you think the the jungle dragon is going to eat Thongor as as he is helpless within the the clutches of this this vampiric vine, a wizard shows up out of nowhere and uses a something in a chest, some sort of powder. And as the dragon gets closer and closer, he throws this powder into its mouth, and the dragon goes over and collapses. Starts tripping balls, yo. <laughs> That's right. That's because this is Shiraja, the Wizard of Lemuria, from the from the title. And he understands how to process the powder from the Dream Lotus, which is certainly a trope that we've seen in other sword and sorcery tales. Right, John? Yes. And I wish he would have introduced himself as, I am the wizard from the title. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The titular Wizard of Lemuria. Wizard of Lemuria. Which I maintain would be a really good power metal band. But whatever. Shiraja introduces himself, says, hey, you should come with me. I'm in need of a warrior. Yeah, it's so, again, to be fair to Lynn Carter, the guy knows how to end chapters. He's got the he's got the hook like down pat this guy with his writing chops i realize this wasn't necessarily the first book he wrote but it was the first one that was published at this point he has a very thorough understanding of how these pulps run like with chapter four it ends with the the dragon is chasing me and with chapter or i'm sorry that's at chapter three chapter four ends with the wizard of lemuria saying i have need of a warrior you know like from here on out he does a really classy job or, you know, commendable job of, of ending chapters with the, the hook out there to sort of pull you along, to keep you reading through these quick little chapters. Yeah. And the chapters are sort of vignettes as uh, so far. Yeah, to- they are. This is this is this is fun 
this is fun writing. Yeah, for sure. So we're we're finally we're putting the pieces where they need to be on the board, right? And here we begin chapter five, the underground palace. So Shiraja has a uh, a dragon, more or less, uh, tied up that he's gonna uh, ride with Thongor to the the mountains of Mamur. So I took this as basically a. Uh Oh, a protoceratops, not a triceratops, but like a protoceratops with ears. Okay. Okay. Because I thought it was kind of silly because he talked about the reptile had ears and he had like the reins hooked to the ears. So it's like he's pulling on the earrings of the, of the dinosaur. But the the description makes you think of like an ankylosaur or like a triceratops or something. Okay. They're riding or, or a big rhino, but it's (laughs) a reptile. I would ride if I was going to ride a dinosaur. Yeah. My, my notes, uh, the, the, the synopsis of this chapter says Shiraja and Thongor reach the, their underground lair, share a meal and devise a plan to retrieve the floating ship. <laughs> That's it's basically what happens. Summary. Yeah. So they get to Shiraja's underground palace. Uh, Shiraja has these unseen servants, which is a spell from Dungeons and Dragons. They make a, a nice meal. They get to eat. Uh, they talk for a little bit. Uh, Shiraja says, look, I have these motives. I don't want to talk about them right now. I know I told you I need a wizard, but I don't want to tell you why yet. Um, He's really obtuse. He very, he, yeah, very much so. And and you know, again, like the to to Carter's credit for these first couple chapters, you don't quite know where the if the wizard of of Lemuria is the as the antagonist of the story, or or what? Like, it, yeah. you know, you can't trust a wizard. No, Th- no. Fongor doesn't trust a wizard. Like he says it <laughs> in his mind. <laughs> Yeah, then there's a whole city of wizards called Czar, and you can't trust anyone from there. But they make plans to retrieve the floating ship, and that's more or less what happens in this chapter. It's it's filler. Uh, it needs to be there. It's exposition, limited exposition, but it bridges uh, Thongor leaving the jungle and Thongor meeting the wizard, I guess. And we get the story of <laughs> the world, the universe, everything sort of by this wizard. This is the classic like secret history that's that's revealed over their next dinner, right? That's true. Yeah. So uh chapter six is the science of Shiraja, wherein they go get the airship and Shiraja fixes it. <laughs> uh but during this chapter, Thongor does sort of wander around the the lair and see some weird magic things. Uh he sees a a, a sword with a Ruby in the hilt that seems as though it's watching him. Oh yeah, I wonder if that sword's going to come back. I want to be a useful item within our story. I feel like it's a good example of Chekhov's gun. Yeah, um, he sees you know some skeletons, some brains in jars, like you know just to sort of set the stage that Shiraja really is a serious wizard, I guess. Um, serious enough to be messing around with necromancy and some weird shit like that, right? Yeah, so, like you said, we don't know if this guy is a good guy or a bad guy yet. And Chapter 7, we get the secret history of the world, like you said, Luke. You know, basically, there were some some dragon kind, some reptilians that were ruling the world before before humans, right? The dragon kings. Yeah. The Dragon Kings, they rule over the planet Earth, and no man can understand the weird and darkling emotions that seethe in their cold ophidian blood. Forever were they to be unintelligible to man, their lore strange and enigmatic, their science frightful and awesome, their ways repellent and evil. And things go well for them for a long time, but they start to wax long in the tooth, sort of. 
uh, and the 19 gods become, I guess, upset that the dragon kings are in charge. And so they created the first men, which could be seen as the rise of the mammals evolutionarily. And they create Fondath, the firstborn. And from his lines or loins sprang a mighty line. Nibidus, the first city, was built on the shores of the ultimate east of Lemuria. And then the dragon kings came uh, when the snows whelmed and conquered their mysterious realm at the pole. And then they fought a thousand-year war between the hero kingdoms of man, the first kingdoms of man, and the dragon kings. For a thousand years, this war raged across Lemuria. And the, is it the star sword? The sword of the Midas, the star sword, which the gods forged, plays a key role in ending this war, right, Luke? Yeah, yeah. So the sword is handed down like from the gods. So this is this is like a cosmic weapon here that comes down to them and we find out that it's made like from a meteorite. Like that's what we learn sort of in future chapters. But but that's the useful that's the that's the blade of Anduril, <laughs> you know, yep. Lord of the Rings style that's gonna that's gonna uh, allow the the dragon kings to be to be cast down and cast aside and you know the reign of man to really sort of uh take off and it's also the 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 black blade from elric like this is the or, or oh, yeah even, that's true too or even excalibur like this is the the promised sword that will uh sort of save humanity but it only saves it really temporarily because yes the dragon kings are vanquished but in their slithery ways, the dragon wizards escape the full breath of punishment and have now been hidden amongst Lemurians for, it sounds like, thousands of years, waiting for the correct uh, alignment of the stars again to mm. open a portal that will... I, I didn't quite understand this part. The portal will allow the dragon kings to reign again? Yeah. Or so th- bring their god back? This is a, a cool trope within, uh, you know, Lovecraftian uh, stories or even Dungeons & Dragons, right? Like, you've got this cult that worships this this god of the outer dark or the chaos or whatever. And on a certain day at the appointed hour, if the stars align correctly and you have... Uh, perform the the correct ritual, then you can bring those gods into the material plane. Yeah, so they're going to open up the window. They're going to open up the door, and if if they do everything just right, the the distance between the two dimensions will be closed, and the dragon kings will be able to hop back over. And then it's you know then it's fun, super fun times uh, for the dragon kings and not for men. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a very uh, you know symbolic like seven thousand and seven years have passed since uh, since the big showdown the last time around right or something like that. So but what is the one object that can stop their monstrous plan? The star sword, right? Yeah, of course they're well, using the these these monstrous towers to open this portal, and the star sword can can bring the towers down or or disrupt the machinery in some way. The problem is no one knows where the star sword is. Yeah. It's destroyed. It's long lost, it sounds like. But Jungle Jim, or what's the wizard's name? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jungle Jim. <laughs> Jungle, I'm sorry. <laughs> Jungle Jim the wizard, He's he can make the sword anew. Like, he can make a fresh one, right? Right, yeah. yeah he, he knows has that the process. Knowledge. Yeah. yeah. He's got so the they're co- going to fly the boat, which he mechanics together. 
from the pieces they find in the jungle. They're going to fly it to where the Scarlet Druids live. The Scarlet Druids have a piece of star heart, of meteorite, whatever you want to call it, that fell from the heavens many millennia ago that is said to be like the key talisman of their god, and they don't guard it. It mysteriously is unguarded. But all Thongor and Shadrach, Shazrushra, have to do is fly into this town, take the Scarlet Druid Star Stone, and then reform the Star Sword, and they'll be well on their way to stopping the nefarious dragon wizards. Thongor says, if your words are indeed true, wizard, I'm going to use my Wolverine voice for Thongor, and your intentions are as they say, then seek no further, bub. My steel is at your service. I like that, that Thongor is not the... Uh not the thinking hero that Kron or that that Cole is, nor is he uh, as agnostic and I don't know what the right word is. Like, more like nu- neutral, a neutral as Conan. But yeah, he's he's a man of ego. He wants to be a hero. He wants yeah. to sharpen his sword against you know his enemy's flesh, and yeah, he's he's all about it. Yeah, I don't he think Conan would have jumped at this. He would have been like, ah, I mean, he would help if he really had to, but being a mercenary, that's pretty cool with Conan. Thongor's all about like, I want to be the hero they sing of in the next Star Sword epic that is passed down through the next Lemurian generation. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Conan might have helped out had uh, circumstances favored gaining riches during this, but there's no promise of that. Yeah, right. And, and Cole would have thought about whether or not it was right, you yeah, know, in that kind of way. But you know, like this story, the secret history of the of the Lemurian world that we get here. You know, this is very Colish in, in terms of Howardian uh, heroes. We're getting lizard men. We're getting the great disguise across the world. But the 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 reptilians are coming back here. Yeah, so and it. I- Go ahead. Sorry, it, it does fit well into that mythos, I think. Like, this is the 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 clash between people and, and serpent men that Cole learned about in those stories. I end up reading more about the serpent men thing. I think I discussed it during the Shadow Kingdom about David Icke's yeah. and his, his reptilian conspiracy. So, I had an extra half hour or so at work today, and I like... if. If the University of Nebraska checks the internet records for my office, they're going to really be wondering about me. I was reading all these conspiracy blogs and websites about Lemuria and the reptilians and this sort of pulp history of the serpent men that can disguise themselves as people. And there was this really cool theory from this professor named Michael Barkun or Barkin from Syracuse that... He says this reptilian conspiracy stuff that we've talked about before. David Ikes believes that there is a reptilian race of humans or of aliens that sort of rule over humanity in secret. And they include the Queen of England and Prince Charles, as well as George W. Bush and David Cameron and many others. And Christofferson, right? Didn't you say Chris Christofferson? Christofferson. (laughs) For some reason. Uh, that all these people, that the, they're not people, they're lizard people, they're serpents in hiding. And some people have actually sort of traced the lineage of these Ike's ideas all the way back to Howard and the Shadow Kingdom, as well as stories like Thongor of Lemuria. This uh, Michael Barkin guy from Syracuse 
He says that these reptilian conspiracy theories have their origins in the Shadow Kingdom, which came out, I can't remember when, but in the early 30s, right? Right, yeah. Uh, and then there was a guy in the 40s named Maurice Doriel who obviously read the Shadow Kingdom and the stories that Clark Ashton Smith, Smith and Howard Phillips Lovecraft wrote later that featured the same serpent people, sort of. And he writes his own things called The Mysteries of the Gobi and the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, the Atlantean Wizard. And they are all about, they're the first publications of his Brotherhood of the White Temple. And they begin this idea that serpent people crash landed here a long time ago. They hid in plain sight on Earth and have like assimilated and taken over the rest of humanity. And that David Ikes in his book, The Children of the Matrix, are direct descendants of all these different <laughs> literature pieces. And it's this weird timeline. And you can see how it all lines up. And then you read these reptilian conspiracy people. And it sounds a lot like uh, Lynn Carter wrote it for Thongor of Lemuria. <laughs> these dragon kings that are hiding. Uh, there's one. I'll send it to you guys later. Maybe we can tweet it out or something. Yeah, we'll but. put it on the show notes. <laughs> it, it, it's from a place called Humans Are Free, and it's all about uh, the 13 families of the Lizard Kings and their power over humanity. It's some, some weird shit. I won't lie. <laughs> that is pretty weird. But it does Sorry, fit... I'll put on a rampage there. No, no, it fits into this story very nicely, and it's it's cool to talk about and... and you know, sort of shoot some conjecture out there about how these pulp stories have influenced some weird sort of alt, alt beliefs, I guess. Penn and Teller would have a field day with that shit, man. Oh, for sure, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where we're going to take a break, I guess, for this portion of Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria. It is here that Thongor the Mighty set forth on the path of his destiny at last, and it is here that his saga truly begins. So we've spent 62 pages sort of putting Thongor into this situation. Um, does this fit the monomyth the, or the monomythic cycle in, in some sense? Like, is, is Thongor being sort of manipulated by any kind of outer forces or is he, is he about to set off? Like, is this the call to action or the call to heroism of uh, the monomyth? Definitely. He hasn't met the goddess yet or anything, but uh, he has, he has crossed a couple of thresholds and has been called to action by supernatural aid. The, the wizard. He needs to meet up with a, uh, like a furry sidekick, right? Yeah, that's true. It's gotta happen. Yeah. It's gotta happen here soon. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the the sword that's broken that has to be reforged. Like that, that is such a powerful, powerful trope. You know, we've got to save the world using this sword, right? This this symbol. Why is that so powerful? Why why is that notion of a sword and and more to the point, a broken sword that needs to be remade, such a powerful symbol? Well, it's something that gets brought up, like, even way back in myth. Like, we were reading through this, and I may be spoiling my one thing for the next recording, uh, but I'll just mention it here, that I'm reading this book that's called uh, The Broken Sword by Paul Anderson. So this is a book that was written the same year 
or released the same year that Fellowship of the Ring came out. And so Paul Anderson's one of the big wigs, one of the big names in science fiction and fantasy. And this is a fa- this is a famous book, but it's one that's been clearly like overshadowed by the Lord of the Rings. Uh, but it's it's still Norse mythology, and you have elves and orcs and a lot of uh norse tropes one of which is a sword that's broken that has to be reforged (laughs) you know that's been handed down to our protagonist in this case it's from the norns like that give him this this birthday gift uh and it's the broken sword but it's you know it's just crazy to think that the same the same time that tolkien is writing about aragorn and the broken sword like the you know Anderil, that that you see this coming up like so often and so you know at least within norse mythology it's there right and this is something that comes up across lots of different myths but it's just something we've thought about for centuries right in 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 millennia (laughs) thousands and thousands of years i think speaking as a modern person the sword holds a lot of romantic power to people nowadays it's a more civilized weapon for a more civilized age in a lot of people's eyes and they did break a lot and there's just something to this idea that if we can put the pieces back together of our past like that we can vanquish some sort of evil in our lives today uh i think that the sword as a like a cultural touchstone sort of meets those requirements for us because it's from the past and it requires a special sort of heroism. It's not a gun that you can fire from afar. If you're going to fight with a sword, you're going to get in close and risk your life to use it. It, it. I think it also touches on something more primal for us. It's, uh-huh. you know, I don't know. I think you're right in that it romanticizes this notion of, of one-on-one combat. Like it's, it's you and your muscles and your training and your sword, right? And the quality of your blade and the quality of your fighting style or, or whatever versus the opponent. Whereas, you know, if you have a gun and your gun is, um, has a better range or maybe you have a scope and you can get the, the opponent without them even knowing you're there, it takes something away from this perceived, uh, glory of combat. That's just sort of a modern thing, though. More to Luke's point, I don't know why this would have arisen in myth in the past. I mean, they grew up with swords, so we have romanticized versions of swords. I doubt that they had the same view. Uh, familial swords, maybe, but but not the sword as a tool. Well, wouldn't wouldn't spears or or some other type of weapon have been more common than swords? Because well, I- it's it's funny that you say that because like in the in the broken sword, the sword that's given to Scathlock or whatever are are the elfish the elvish like protagonist, it's like a glaive. It's like a it's like a spear sword that's that's given to him. It's not it's not the traditional sword, uh, but it's you know something I think that would be more common with like with that group. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, no, <laughs> like that's, outright that's inter- interrupt you, but it was like, oh yeah, what the, it's it's not always just the standard. I mean, I guess we could talk about like the uh, oh, what, what stabbed Jesus? Uh, oh, the, the lance, the yeah. lance of Longinus. Right, like that's that's kind of a magical sword in its own right too, right? Yeah, it's it's been anointed by the blood of the Christ, but it's a spear rather than being a sword, yeah. and you know. In in my own 
history with uh, <clears throat> you know, with fiction. You know, my earliest memories of of swords, I guess, have to do with He Man. And when He Man holds aloft his sword, uh, a Prince Adam that is, he can he can use the power of that sword to turn into He Man, and then he's a super badass who um, saves the day. From the Disney point of view, the sword and the stone is their retelling of the once and future king, right? The the story of uh-huh. Arthur as yeah, a yeah. kid before he pulls the sword from the stone. So the sword is something to to be sought after, and it is this thing that makes you more than a man. It makes you a king. It makes you a leader. And without that sword, you're you're not a king. You're you're nothing. Um and so I think there is something about swords that other medieval weapons like glaives, like spears, halberds, you know, we could go through the uh, the D&D equipment guide and look at all the other equipment and then think about what you would want your character to start with. And it's probably some type of sword or sword-like thing, like a rapier or a dagger or something. Some bladed weapon. Bastard sword. Bastard sword, right, yeah. Hand and a half, that's what you want. Yeah. Uh, two, two D, uh, wait, 2D6 or 1D12? It's the 2D6. It's yeah, better I think than, so. It's better than, like, the... the the oh the heavy axe or plus, whatever plus strength and a half because yeah. you have to wield it with two hands. I think you sort of hit on why a big part of why though that we like the sword. The Arthurian myth has definitely painted everybody's view of swords for a really long time. I, that's an it's an old old story and and it really really paints swords as the mystical tool of the king or the mystical tool of the champion sort of. I wonder if it's not because it would have been it would have cost many 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 gold pieces or or pence or whatever to have purchased a sword and that makes it more glorious to own a sword whereas now you can go to the flea market and buy a sword for like 10 bucks (laughs) (laughs) at the 4-h fair (laughs) right anyway i I took us down a little part comes in though i think that's that's an interesting question that's the the... oh i'm sorry go ahead No, no just why the broken why 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 putting it back together is so important because that's a Tolkien thing. It's this story that Luke's talking about. Here we got it in Thongor. Isn't the He-Man sword? Isn't doesn't it have to be put back together, or is that Skeletor's sword? Uh, I don't remember. I know that if you put Skeletor's sword and He-Man sword together, it does something extra magical. Oh, but okay. <laughs> there's some homoerotic tones to that that <laughs> I don't want to get into. But there is something. I mean, even in video games like The Legend of Zelda, you're you're trying to to get the magical sword that you can use to to damage the final boss and then the the magical arrow that you can use to kill him. So, the, this magical sword or sword that was broken trope pops up a lot and this is taking us down an avenue that I didn't think we'd go down, but it's interesting to to sort of speculate about. American Barbarian by Tom Scioli. Yeah. It's got the tangle of swords. Okay. And we've talked about the uh, the Blurry Photos podcast before. Oh, yeah. But earlier this year, in 2015, in June, they had an episode. It's 115. It's called Legendary Weapons. They talk about the recurrence of like legendary weapons across all all different kinds of cultures. Right. Like we've been pretty Europe European or Eurocentric with the the examples we've been talking about so far just because like the Excalibur type myths are <laughs> you know, are so rife. Like that's mm-hmm. what we can that's what comes to mind easily with a lot of our 
the fiction that we're familiar with. But, you know, these are things that are all across the world. And right. so, so whether it's Japanese, Filipino, Chinese, you right. know, South American, there's, there are legendary weapons, but the idea of a broken weapon that's being repaired, I think that's something powerful. And I think we'll probably talk about that more in the second episode. For sure. <laughs> there is a video game that came out when I was in high school called Chrono Trigger. Oh, yeah. And part of the story of Chrono Trigger, the first half of the game is putting together this sword called the Masamune or the Masamune, which finds its roots in Japanese folklore. That's like their classic sword, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So there were two sword. The story is that, as I understand it, there were two sword masters, Masamune and Murasame, and they were trying to figure out who could make the best sword. And so they both, both took... X amount of time, let's say a year. And they spent that time making, pouring all of their effort, their will into making the best sword that they can make. And then to try out their swords, they both dip them into a river. And Masamune's sword, uh, or, or let me start, let me start with Mirasame. Mirasame's sword, uh, he, he dipped it into the river and a leaf floats into the sword and it's the sword splits the leaf in half. It's so sharp. And Murasame, or Masamune's sword, he dips the sword into the river and a leaf floats toward the sword and then moves around it. And the point is that the superior sword is the sword that does not ever have to fight. It does not ever have to damage anything. It is powerful enough in its own right that it prevents any type of combat. And so Masamune wins the competition because the leaf avoids any type of conflict with the sword. Awesome. <laughs> Cool. I hope I didn't make that up just now. <laughs> <laughs> you should um, but that's what I remember. And I think the Blurry Photos guys talked about that. Story. Oh, that sounds very Jungian, though. Whatever you just channeled there, if, if that's something that just came from your from your subconscious, your, your deep, like, primitive, like, lizard brain. <laughs> <laughs> the, the superior fighter is the one who does not have to fight. Dude, you just went all Buddha. That's right. <laughs> You just went full Buddha. Full, I went full Buddha. You never go full Buddha. So here we are at the end of the first half of Thangor of Lemuria. Guys, what did you think? Should, should we reserve our judgment until we see the full story? Or can yeah. we talk about our impressions up front now? It's a romp. I can see why Lynn Carter is so divisive. But I'm willing to wait to hold final judgment until the actual end of the story. Okay. Fair enough. Luke? Yeah, is I'm I'm on board. I mean, uh, you know, it's this is such a quick, dirty, fun, easy read that I mean, what we I've probably spent an hour and a half and we're we're halfway through it or something like that. Yeah. Like it's for for what it is, it's it's pretty good, you know, to get through here. I read these 60 pages in about an hour. And we like you said, we've been talking about it for almost two hours. So there is something here. And I think that where we are now in the story with Thongor ready to go confront the Dragon Kings um, speaks to the fandom that I have for the Elder Scrolls, specifically Skyrim. And, you know, I'm ready for Thongor to be the Dragonborn and to uh, start devouring dragon souls and, and face the, the world eater, Alduin. I'm ready for that. And so that's what I expect in the next half of Thongor and the Wizard of Lemuria. Any final thoughts before we sign off? I think we're good. Cool. I'm excited to talk about the rest of the story. I'm always excited to talk to you guys. Uh, yeah, I miss you guys when, we're, when, when we are not together. Until next time, how can the folks 
find out about us and listen to us and all that kind of good stuff. Well, they could open a browser on their tablet or smartphone or laptop and direct it toward HTTP colon forward slash forward slash the com. There they could listen to any of the episodes within our archives. They could subscribe to us with their uh, feeds. Uh, they could they could check us out. Uh, they could also find us on iTunes or on Twitter at the Chromecast or Facebook the facebook.com slash the Chromecast. If you wanted to leave us any type of feedback, and we welcome that, we certainly do. Please do. The Chromecast at gmail.com or call us 859 429 Chrom. We and get. If, oh, 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 I'm sorry. And if I said that any of that too fast, slow this way down. Just, just Google Chromecast and you'll get us or Chromecast. That's right. Google will say, Did you mean Chromecast? And you'll say, No. Google, I meant Chromecast, yeah. and then it'll say, oh, okay, here's a bunch of stuff. We're really good about getting all kinds of feedback from you guys, whether it's it's emails or Facebook comments or whatnot, but give us something audio. Give us a recording. Send us a send us a, a quick little snippet. I mean, if you've got something to say. If you don't, that's cool, too. Yeah. But, <laughs> but we, want, we want to hear your dulcet tones, and if you can't call us, if you're abroad, if you're in, in Europe or Asia or Africa or South America, somewhere else, other than the the continental U.S., then you can email your thoughts as a WAV file, attach that as an attachment, and send it to thecromcast at gmail.com, and we will play it on the show and respond to you in kind. That's right. <laughs> Until next time, I've been Josh. I'm Luke. I'm John. And we are the Chromecast. See you next time. <laughs>